Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. And now, you know, I mean, Beheim, yes, has been, been at Syracuse since the mid-70s as the head coach. Before that, as an assistant, before that, he was a player. I mean, he's been, been there, there his whole life. Diapers. Yeah. His whole life is spent in Syracuse, New York. His entire life. And he'll tell you he loves it. He's the yeah. one. It's He's great. I mean, it's great. If you think I about went to it, school it's, in like, Binghamton. It's like the saddest premise I've ever heard to spend your whole life in Syracuse, New York, but not for Jim Bang. No, he loves it. This is General George Washington, and you're listening to the Tony Kornheiser Show. So we're going to start with a couple of personal things. Michael ordered me the um, flutes from American Express because I was there for 50 years and they showed up. They came. Yes, but you lied to me. Well, about what? <laughs> I talked to you yesterday on the phone and you said, I have something for you. Yeah. So for, I don't know, all of that, yesterday afternoon, I was looking forward. I have that. I have That's that. That's my Tupperware. I know. <laughs> I'm you, feeding you. You put you. the lasagna in there. And so I have that. I have that for you and then I have the American you Express You made me unbox me. A, an 8 by 10 10 Tiffany box, ribbon by ribbon, and made an unfurling all of the okay, bubble wrap. I'll give them to you if no. you want them. And then he thought they were, well, how would you describe the quality? Garbage. <laughs> Until Nigel looked them up online. And what they cost? <laughs> About 100 bucks. Yeah, so that's good. For the pair? Yeah. They just, they seemed a little thicker than I thought they would be. I thought uh, the thinner glass is the higher quality, but I could be wrong about that because I don't know I'm anything sure about glassware. I'm sure you'll manage to break them. Oh, soon. <laughs> From Peter Jennings, not that Peter Jennings. Still hoping you and Michael will make it to Old Town in Sedgefield in 2022. You have open invitation. I'm thinking of Dave Joseph from Kansas City, Kansas as a fourth. That's funny. We want to play these, right? Very much so. All right. Which Sedgefield more than Old Town or Old Town more than for Sedgefield? For me, Old Town. Um, but I would love to pair that up with Sedgefield. And for you, we can do it as we're driving down to Pinehurst. Okay. okay. About an hour and a half north. Good, good, we'll, good, good. So let me, let me just talk about... Well, let me read this first. This is from Ben Sandler in Columbia, Maryland. I've been a little before there were littles, a reader since early post days, a listener since the beginning of the WTEM days. Both of my sons are littles. Even the person I'm related to by marriage has learned to tolerate you. The reward for being a loyal little came on Monday. You mentioned Leslie Mendelson has a cover of Be My Baby that was supposed to be fabulous. I paused your show and searched for it and listened. Oh my goodness, fabulous doesn't do it justice. Stop your recording right now and have Michael find it for you on your Google machine. Thanks for all the years of entertainment and distraction from life. And, oh, eat it, Salizzo. <laughs> so I talked about this the other day, and I have talked about this with my son. The level of submissions that we have musically are astonishing. I don't know if I've talked about why we do original music, but it's nothing to be ashamed of. When we got off regular terrestrial radio and we got onto a podcast, we found out that in order to play music that you were familiar with, in order to continue the old guy radio segment, in order to do all that, the cost was for us prohibitive. Um, podcasts, they get charged an enormous amount of money to use music that circulates in our lives. And so I said, what should we do? And we came upon the idea of using original music. And as I say, the submissions are wonderful. I mean, the stuff we get from all over the country, the stuff we get from people who used to have bands 30 years ago, young kids starting out, you know, the fathers of daughters with great talent who send us their music. It's the relationship to music because it's not just, hey, I'm trying to make it as a touring musician. It's somebody who's fa fallen back into the love of songwriting. Uh, it, it's sharing that, that journey. 
the bands that we get, even when they break up, like Hot Pink Hangover, right. Ronnie Newmeyer, and, and Tom Laughing and stuff like that. Or even someone like Ian Warrington, the emergency room doctor. The emergency room doctor. <laughs> it's brilliant. Violin. All of these things yeah, are all brilliant. Things, Bill yeah. Isaacson sends us Shannon McNally things all the time. And in fact, we have Shannon McNally songs now. So I'm blown away by most of these things. And I don't honestly, when we play them as an introduction to someone... I'm always very aware that I have to move off the music and get to the introduction. And so I don't unless normally... Unless it's Dan Byrne. Unless it's Dan Byrne, who's a genius. Right. But, you know, D Dan Byrne's not making beautiful music. He's making brilliant music. There's a difference for us. So I get off the songs. I don't really listen to them, and I don't listen afterwards. I mean, I have a sense that some of these people are really, really good. Leslie Mendelssohn interested me and was really, really good. And because it was sent to us... By our guy from Dallas, who knows what he's doing. Yeah, Michael Granberry, yes. So Leslie sent a note which said, thank you so much for playing my songs on your show and for all the lovely things you said. It was great to hear you made my day. If you're free this Thursday, which would be tomorrow, I'd like to invite you to my show at City Winery. Would love for you to be my guest. Thanks again for all the love. Now, I don't know what City Winery is, but you looked it up and it's... There's yeah, it looks a, a like there's different, yeah, different music venues around the mostly East Coast, I'm guessing. So I don't know if that's necessarily in Washington. If it is, would you like would you like to go? I don't go anywhere. <laughs> but let me play this for you. This is Be My Baby. We're just going to play a little bit. I'm going to hold the iPhone up, and you can just listen to it, if this works. The night we met, I knew I needed you so. And if I had the chance, I'd never let you. So won't you say you love me I'll make you so proud of me We'll make them turn their heads Every place we go So won't you please Be my little baby Say be my darling So that's all I'm playing for you, because I don't know what the rights are, and I don't know how long we can go and not get charged $50,000. Be My Baby is a song that if you are my age, you know exactly the words, you know exactly how old you were when it came out. You are moved by it physically, the Ronettes version. It's a fabulous song. It is, and I don't like to use the word iconic. It's an iconic song, Be My Baby. Especially if you know about Phil Spector and Ronnie Spector and all of that stuff. If anyone were to do that song in the style of Ronnie Spector, I would not even listen for 10 seconds. It would be meaningless to me, unless it was Smith doing that Shirelle <laughs> song with the greatest note I've ever heard in my life. But most of the time, most of the time when people cover music in the style of the original, I don't care about it. It's why it was so stunning to me, and I'm using this name advisedly and deliberately. It's why it was so stunning to me when I heard Carole King do her own songs, which are so much different than the way other people did her songs. And this, to me, was the Carole King interpretation of Be My Baby. It's soft. It's melancholic. There's a want to it 
that is different from Ronnie Spector's. She doesn't do Ronnie Spector's voice. She doesn't do that. This is damn fabulous. I mean, honestly, when I heard it, Nigel sent it to me, I had tears in my eyes because it was such a great version. And I don't want to just sit here and talk about how great Leslie Mendelssohn is because you, you can hear that for yourself. But it is the pleasure I get when people send us this music. When there's a new interpretation of the music, when you when you are, you sit in your seat, you don't you don't move, you just let the thing drift over you, right, Michael? I mean, it's just I, and be my baby. You're way too young for be my baby, but you know what I'm saying. I, I'm not too young for. It. I mean, I'm too young to be in sort of that high school age as it sort of takes over your body as you listen to that song. But to sort of symbolically what it represents, and this gets to that same point, but but it's a there's a patience and almost a prudence to the delivery here Lovely that just lets you linger over they had a song in 1956 which we played earlier because who names their kids patience and prudence it's it's a let the record sentence. show that tony was playing a song off of youtube on his car phone yeah that's what i was doing it's well done you know but i mean terrence could could people hear that do you think were they able to hear that do you think that's possible oh loud and clear it set the mood okay good it, it so actually so worked beautiful. better. There's a distance to it coming from your phone. It's it, so beautiful. It's and by, like by the way, at the, the end of the song, at the end of the Be My Baby that you're familiar with, she has written her own lyrics and she changes the melody. And it's just great. I mean, it's really great. And that's how I feel about the stuff overwhelmingly that is sent to us. You mentioned Ian Warrington. It's tremendous. He plays like four different instruments. He's an emergency room doctor. Like, I... The best thing I can do is cook speedies on an open grill other than what I do for a living. You do that well. Music is, you know, music is a, is a common language. I mean, it really is. Or music actually is a common language. And that's why in that movie with Richard Dreyfus, that's why there were those notes when Close Encounters, when they land the spaceship to guide it in, that's why it's music. Because everybody, you can... You can have three heads and one eye and still understand music. And the original music has just added another layer of circles to the show. And speaking of submissions, I was sent a message from Joe Arrow, and I wanted to share this, that they oh. are doing Jingle Trek this Saturday night in Nashville. Uh, they're trying to get littles nearby that have not ever met uh, to show up to this event. So this is going to be on March 4th at 7 p.m. at the Nashville Music Loft, floor number two. Well, that's wonderful. And Maybe... there's going to be a Mingle Fest the night before. And if you've never been to one of these like events... Do you think like Tim Wildsmith and the people that sent us music from Nashville might be there. Well, I would hope let's so, see yeah. the groups meet up. Uh, but if you've never been, tremendous amount of fun, and the Jinglers are a great community. Yes. All right. So now, now we'll do a little bit of inside baseball. Um, you're right, hearing three, this ball four. Yeah. Yeah. Walk oh. around. You get the scores. You're blind out. dump. You're blind dump. You must, you must be, be out, out, out of your mind dump. <laughs> Damn Yankees, starring Michael Kornheiser, Murray. Um Goodbye, old girl. Now you did a great job. My old girl. Joe. What's Joe's last name? Joe. Joe okay, Hardy? I'm saying Joe West. Yeah, Joe Hardy. Joe, yeah, Joe, Joe West Hardy. is Cowboy Joe yeah, West. And then he becomes no. Joe Hardy in the second act. Yeah. So um, I don't know what time you're listening to this, but we had to start late. We had to start late by over an hour. We had uh, technical problems. Uh, there does reach a point where I go, what are we going to do? We had to flip guests around you know, to make the whole thing work because there are two stories today that are – top of mind for just about everybody, if, if you like sports. One is that baseball canceled the first two series. That's not a tremendous amount of games. It's no more than seven games, but they canceled the first two series. And, and of course, 
Uh, the president of the United States issued the State of the Union last night. So we wanted to deal with them. We wanted Chris Eliza and we wanted Jeff Passan. And Jeff on ESPN is hit up a thousand times. So we moved everything around in order to accommodate that. And and I I have a lot of character flaws. One of my big ones is a lack of patience. And so it was demonstrable earlier today as we were sitting and waiting for the ability to do the show. And we now have the ability to do the show. And so I'm better. I'm not good, but I'm better. Right? Is that fair to say? Yeah, we're trying to build back better. A, a, a Joe Biden reference. So what is he doing now? He's he's, he's taking pieces out because he's afraid Joe Manchin will sink <laughs> the other thing that he wants. So, well, let's talk to Chris about that at some point. So, So why don't we do the original order and bring... Chris on Chris next, on next. Is, is, yes. is that doable? Yes, I believe Chris is uh, is ready and We had this thing, we, by the way, I, I will just say this. We had the baseball yesterday, the PTI show. Um, Not great timing for you. No, because they said that Rob Manfred would speak at 5, which many would speak at 5.10, and we had to wait for that, and then we had to do the A segment. We got it in, but it was really sort of tight, and then while we were actually on the air, we then taped the last segment of the show. It got it got to be a little bit nervous, but you know that happens. Made me sad. The baseball thing made me sad. I'll communicate that with Jeff later yeah, in the show. But it means the Nats get one less game against Max Scherzer, likely. Oh, was he going to open the season? You'd assume he's your opener with, with the Mets. Yeah, we think so. Opening series, yeah, yeah, probably game two. If there's anything that's depressing about it, there are several things about it, but just the fact that they don't have any negotiations immediately scheduled at this point. <laughs> yeah, we'll know. get to all that with Jeff yeah. Passan at some point in the show. Uh, we'll take a break. When we come back, Chris Eliza will join us about the State of the Union. I'm Tony Kornheiser. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews or coverage of all the biggest stories in the nba our new show is the place to be five days a week download and follow beyond the arc on apple podcasts spotify and wherever you get your favorite podcasts you're listening to the tony kornheiser show i mentioned that we had shannon mcnally before bill isaacson's good friend Shannon and Brett Hughes will be appearing together at the Pearl Street Warehouse in D.C. Saturday, March 12th, next Saturday. This is called This Time. This is, a, this is pro music. Yes. And this is pro music. I mean, somebody has sent me some of her music. Um, I, think, I think it was Mike Gleason sent me some of her songs that I could watch on my phone and listen to. She's great. Shannon McNally is great. She plays in Chris Saliza. Um, and we want to talk to Chris about the uh, speech last night. I mean, the first general question is, I concede I didn't watch it. I was tired. How was it overall? <laughs> what, what, you know, how did you think it was overall? And were there a highlight or two that you said, this was really good? So I would say, and this is, this is uh, actually different from the last four years, it was utterly normal. Um, normal in the sense that Biden is not Trump, right? Biden is a creature of the Senate, spent decades in Congress, uh, was vice president for eight years, 
So in that way, he gave what was, a, you know, a traditional um, State of the Union speech, a lot of policy proposals um, in which Democrats cheered and Republicans sat on their hands, you know, that usual theater. And then also yeah. normal in the sense that almost no one wore a mask. Um, that They had uh, said as of earlier this week that you did not have to wear a mask when you were in Capitol Hill. Biden didn't wear a mask. He was shaking everybody's hands. There were a few people masked. Um, in the chamber, but by and large, there weren't. So it looked, sounded, and felt a lot like a a pre-COVID, pre-Trump State of the Union. Um, it was not terribly uh, exciting. Uh, it was a uh, it was mostly a State of the Union speech with about ten minutes of foreign policy tacked on the top of it because of the situation in Ukraine. Um, mm-hmm. I honestly think, Tony, the thing that will be the most memorable uh, will be the people who yelled out um, things at Biden, particularly Lauren Boebert from Colorado, who yelled out something uh, as Biden was recounting. Uh, his was on the verge of recounting his son's uh, Bo's death from brain cancer. So I mean, the, like that is what? the thing I think most. Yes, that is the thing that most people will be talking about. I, Do you remember about, years ago we had that with Obama? Joe somebody Wilson. stood up and Joe somebody Wilson stood up and yelled, and everybody right, and everybody said that everybody condemned it. Yeah, I didn't know we were back to that. And he and he apologized, and that's the difference between today and then which we thought we were in a hyper-partisan time then. I remember the coverage of him yelling out, you lie, was, well, this is, this is the, the lowest common denominator politics. This is what we get. This is we're in such a bad place. And now yes. Lauren Boebert does something without question worse in terms of timing and subject matter. And the idea that she would apologize is, is about as likely as I get off the phone with you and go dunk a basketball on the hoop I have at my house. You know what I mean? It's just not going to happen. Right. Um, let me. Can I get to the no masking for a second? Sure. And this is just a very personal opinion that I have. We were told for two years to follow the science. Are you kidding me to believe that overnight the science has changed and the yep. masks aren't needed at all? Are you kidding me with this? Come on. It's, we're not following the science. We're following the politics, aren't we, Chris? Yeah. I mean, it, look, it's not possible that on February 28th you needed a mask and on March 1st you don't, right? No, no, nothing no. has changed no. that drastically in one day. Um, I will tell you, I, I thought it was weird. I was a little bit surprised. I am still someone, this will come as a surprise to literally no one who listens to the show, I am still someone who wears a mask when I go Me inside, too. even to, even Me to too. get Starbucks. Like, even if I'm walking in the Starbucks yeah. for three seconds, I wear a mask. Some of that's force of habit. Uh, some of it is probably me over-exaggerating the risk, but I still do, and I was struck by them not. Um, what's remarkable, Tony, is that it has, it's not just in Congress where you see this. States have, it, I, I think it was something like 75% of states had a mask mandate for inside, inside a week ago, and now 20-something percent do. I mean, we, you've seen a change so rapidly, and I do think it is primarily, I mean, I think they can justify it because the numbers are down. Um, so I think that makes it a little bit easier to, to say we can it's do this. Politics. But yes, it's politics. People, we're two years in. I mean, we are, you know, yeah, March That's 12th-ish, right. 2019 was when this, uh, excuse me, 2020 is when this all began. And we're, we're in Rudy March Gobert, baby. Yeah, Rudy, Rudy, Rudy Gobert. Gobert. And Tom Hanks. Those are the... That's that, right. that, that, that's, that's right. Those happened on the same night, I remember. That's right. And I, that's, I think, when most people date the pandemic. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, let I me think get it to is, Ukraine. I think it is. It is politics. It's not that there isn't any science behind it. You know, the numbers are way down. Case counts are way down. Omicron sort of burned through the country as people thought. They are. Right. They're now saying the CDC That's is right. now saying they think 140 million people have the antibodies, whether through infection or. Uh, uh, immunity uh, through vaccines. So, I, I mean, I, th- th- it's not like this is like deeply irresponsible, but it is, a, I, I think, a pretty stark change. Let me get to Ukraine. Um, and I will say this, that in the last four or five days, I have watched CNN more than I've watched anything else, and it hey, is real news. Attaboy. It is, it is real news. Uh, there's no question about that in my mind. And I watch this, and I watch it with horror, and I, you know, because people increasingly will be killed. They'll just yes, simply absolutely. be killed. Absolutely. They'll be dead. Yep. Um, Joe Biden, as the president of the United States, has a responsibility to talk to this. Uh, it's a two-part question. One is, uh, would we do? Would we commit troops to this if it goes beyond Ukraine or if it stays the way it is? And two, is this something? That, that Joe Biden spoke about well, and do you get the sense that we are, in the United States, speaking as one voice about this? Okay, so the first question, um, it, certainly we are not going to commit uh, American ground troops if it remains isolated to Ukraine. I mean, if, if Joe mm-hmm. Biden suddenly, uh, excuse me, if Vladimir Putin suddenly starts to try to take over, you know, um, Poland, Moldova, you know, all these countries that are in that area, well, then I think we have a different conversation on our hands. But there's zero appetite in the American public for American ground troops in Ukraine or, candidly, anywhere else. I mean, that's why Biden pulled troops out of Afghanistan, because he knew that there was no appetite for it. So um, that's, I, I think that's where it is at the moment. Did he speak well about it? Um, I think he did a fine job of presenting what he has been doing. Essentially, like, look, this is not just us. I spent weeks building this coalition. There's 29 nations, NATO nations involved now in this. Um, We are sort of aligned as freedom against tyranny. Um, Could he have done it, painted it in more stark terms? Probably. Um, I know our friend Chuck Todd was on uh, NBC last night. I was flipping around the channels after the speech, and Chuck thought they should have done more, Biden should have done more to sort of frame the choices, good versus evil, you know, bad versus good. Um, and yeah. that, that he, he talked about what he had done, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't as stark as it could have been. I, I think that that's probably right. I mean, he, he talked about it for 12 minutes at the top of the speech. What it felt like was they had a State of the Union speech basically done two weeks ago. Then Ukraine, then Russia invaded Ukraine. So they kind of tacked on another 10 solid minutes of foreign policy on the top of it. And then Biden sort of, once that was done, he sort of went back and gave his State of the Union speech. So it felt a little bit like two separate speeches. He obviously couldn't deliver a State of the Union speech and not mention Ukraine and Russia. I mean, it's the largest incursion in Europe since World War II, right? Like you can't, troop buildup, you can't not mention it. At the same time, I don't think anything he said there will be particularly memorable. Um, 
I don't think there were a ton of memorable lines. I actually think if you're looking for memorable lines from Biden, as I said, I think the interjections are going to be a bigger story. But if you're looking for memorable lines from Biden, he said, we don't need to do The answer is not defund the police. The answer is fund the police, which to me speaks to how much damage the idea of defunding the police has done to Democrats, that he feels like he needs to address that in his State of the Union yeah. speech. I think that may be the, the lasting kind of line that you, that you hear coming out of it. But I didn't hear anything in the foreign policy section that was particularly new or notable. And, and that may have been on purpose. So I, I, guess, I guess what I'm asking is, are we at a point where this president, not any president, but this president, can move the country? Or is this presidency sort of so paralyzed by everything that goes on between Democrats and Republicans that we, we, we can't do that. I mean, when you sit and you watch this, in real time, you watch this caravan move, this 40-mile-long mm-hmm. caravan. Yep. In almost real time, you're watching buildings blown up. It's unthinkable yep. that people aren't dying. You're just watching this thing happen. Can this president move this country? No. Um, and, and, and that, I, I, I mean that is no slight on Joe Biden, because if you, it, it, there's no president who could move this country uh, right now, particularly yeah. on foreign policy. Yeah. Um, I think the last time we had a president who could move the country on anything was early Obama. So after Obama wins overwhelmingly in 2008, he wins states that a Democrat hasn't won in decades, like Indiana and North Carolina. There's like a three- to six-month period there where Republicans are sufficiently afraid of his political power that they kind of play ball. Uh, second term, that wasn't the case. Obviously, with Trump, that wasn't the case, and it's not the case with Biden. I, I just think people are stuck in. Um, Biden's approval ratings are in the low 40s. His handling, his numbers on handling of Russia are in the lower, are in the low, uh, high 30s. Um, and so, no, I don't, I don't think there's much that can be said or done. I, I think the bulk of the country. Republican and Democrat, is is largely behind the idea that we should help in ways that we can, short of committing American troops to the cause. That we, we that what he's doing now is fine. Um, the sanctions, you have to wait to see if they'll work. I think there is a disconnect and a difficulty, though, as you point out, Tony. It's like, you know, you see this caravan. We all know this caravan is headed to Kiev. We all know that the, the goal is to overthrow the government. We also know that, of course, the U.S. has the military capability to destroy this caravan if they wanted to. Sure. Um, it's right there. It's sitting at there. At the same time, yeah. does that then yeah. provoke a nuclear war with Russia, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the, yeah. that's, that's the problem. Yes. And, and I think that's what's hard for Biden is... Yes, of course, we have the capability to to uh, really hamstring what Russia is trying to do, but then what does that lead to? And I think that what it leads to is something that Joe Biden does not want to even consider at this point. I'll just get you out of here on this. I mean, it is remarkable that you can see this happening. You don't have to wait for dispatches. Yep. You can actually see it happening and read them the next day. Is there dissent in Russia? Is there any chance, in your opinion, and I'm not expecting you to know this, is there any chance that Putin stops short of actually just taking over the entire country and probably executing their leaders? Sure. I mean, I think there's a chance until it happens. Um, right. I, there's So... I think the only dissent that matters to Putin is in this sort of oligarch class. You know, a- after the Soviet Union collapsed, there was 
40, 50 people who got extremely rich. Uh, a lot of them basically bought uh, uh, soccer clubs after, after you know, it's the <laughs> oil and gas industry, it's the energy industry. Yeah. Uh, there's been a little bit of dissent there because these people are worried about one thing, money. It's, it's money. like you always said, you know, the money. answer to all your questions. The answer to all money. your questions. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so I think that they're worried about the sanctions and what that would do to them. Um, to the extent they lean on him, uh, I think that that has some impact. I, I think a prolonged battle for the control of the country is problematic for Putin because the sanctions really start to hurt. This is not a prolonged battle yet. I and, mean, you know, we're basically a week into no. this. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that's a possibility. But at, at the same time, for the rank and file, the average Russian, it's important to remember that Putin controls the media, right? So, so the, the story they're being told is not the actual story, which I think makes unrest. And it's an authoritarian country, so, you know, active civil disobedience is uh, much more risky than it is in this country. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think if it happened from anywhere, it would happen from the top down, from this handful of really, really rich people who lean on Putin and say, hey, this is, this is impacting our bottom line. Let's kind of, let's, let's, get this done one way or another. Thank you, Chris. It's not an optimistic situation. It's no, just it's not. not. In, 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 yeah, it's, it's, not. it's one in which there are no good options. If there was a good option, no. we would have already taken it. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Chris Eliza, so. boys and girls. We'll take a break. We will come back. Jeff Passan will join us and talk about baseball, which seems very trivial, but, you know, in its way, uh, what sports do or sports does is take our minds off these other things, right? So we'll be back. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. Tony Kornheiser Show. Long ago and far away. Once again, Shannon McNally. Bill Isaacson's going to be at this show on the Pearl Street Warehouse on March 12th. And he promises to explain the cheesery in advance to Shannon and to Brett Hughes. So they're not surprised if that happens. I'm not sure if they will accept any explanation for a lot of TK salutes from the audience, but who knows? <laughs> Shannon McNally's fabulous talent. And she plays in Jeff Passan, who's with his son Jack Passan. And Jack can interrupt anytime he wants and say, you know, for an old man, you have no idea what you're talking about. A, yeah. You're, you're going to be on PTI today, so we'll just prep with, with this kind of stuff. And, and the, the most obvious question is, where are we now? Where are we now with this? Is there any talk scheduled? Is there any sense that we're moving at all? Here's the crazy thing, and I, I think I'm going to be out on a, on a limb by myself here, Tony. I'm not doomsdaying quite yet, and I'm not doomsdaying because I remember this thing called history, and history two years ago that told me that Baseball players can get ready for a season in three weeks. That if you need to compress a schedule using double headers, you can do it. And that the idea of baseball falling into this deep state of depression over a chasm that frankly isn't that big is mindless, ridiculous, stupid beyond belief. So I'm not going to sit here and say because Rob Manfred decided to say that opening week is canceled that opening week is canceled because if they get together and they actually listen to each other tony and they actually start recognizing on major league baseball side that these players are not messing around and that they are resolute 
and that they are united and that there are guys there who are willing to miss a season. And if the players recognize that the owners are going to give them some of the respect that they deserve and actually want the game to go in the right direction, I think there's a chance for a deal still. I, again, I might be completely naive here and look like a total fool in a completely. There's just this little, this little light of optimism inside of me still because I'm a pragmatic person. And lawyers tend to be pragmatic people. And the pragmatic thing to do here is not to blow up your sport. And let me tell you, all the little other things around the edge right now, are, are it's, it's like the scene in Game of Thrones in the last season where you're down in the, you know, in the dungeon and you see the little candle there with all the wildfire and it feels like it's about to blow up. Um, the players, Tony are saying we're standing very firm by the fact that you're going to pay us for 162 games this year. And every day that goes by, that threat gets more and more problematic because if the players believe they're getting paid 162 games for 130, for 120, you know, that's just not going to happen. And that's the sort of thing that can torpedo a season. So I assume that all the issues are money because the, all the issues are always money. But this is what I would yep. ask. I was I was watching the uh, MLB Network yesterday because they had they were talking about it live before all of this stuff happened, and they would show numbers. Jeff, every once in a while they would show numbers, and with the exception of luxury tax, the spread in the numbers just didn't seem so large. I mean, do both sides not understand? That in successful negotiations, both sides feel pain? Do they not understand that? I I heard you say that on PTI yesterday and was just nodding right along when you did. Uh, In in a deal, both sides uh, cannot be happy. I think both sides have to be a little bit unhappy. Like, if if you end up like, eh, that's about where deals get made. And I, I, I think, listen, I think... Uh, ultimately, they do understand that. And I think the players have gotten pretty close to that point already. Um, uh, you know, they gave up on a lot of stuff that they felt was fundamental to this fight that they're having. And there have been some questions asked internally, like, did we give up too much? Did we uh, strategically do this the right way? And there's always going to be second guessing. Uh, the, the problem is that... Baseball's economic system, Tony, is broken. It has been broken for a long time. I wrote a story five years ago saying it's broken, and um, it's broken because of this. Players wanted to get younger players paid better, right? They wanted to get them paid earlier in their career. They wanted to get them paid more. And so they negotiated this pre-arbitration bonus pool, and the pre-arb pool MLB is offering $30 million. It's going to end up in the 40 to $50 million range because it should, right? You know, really spread some money out there. Here's the thing. Teams are just going to not sign a guy. They can take from one hand, give to the other, and act like they're giving something. But when you don't have a floor in place to mandate spending – a team can say in any given year, I don't feel like going out and spending in free agency, and, well, that's my prerogative. 
It's not like a salary cap system where you have to spend a particular amount of money where a particular percentage of revenue goes to the players, and that's the way that it works. Baseball's system is odd because it has become a stars and uh, scrubs, not scrubs, but a, a high-paid guys and young, cheap guys sport. And the middle class uh, has almost completely vanished in it, and it's just left this weird zombie-like system uh, where you have uh, someone described to me, it's like Frankenstein's monster. It's like we got one thing that we're adding on here and uh, we're going to put the pre-R bonus pool there and in the end it's almost a rigged game because the owners always end up having the flexibility which is what you want when you are trying to put together an economic system. You want to have all the levers and be able to pull them yourself. Every other sport with a salary cap works. I understand baseball players don't want a salary cap, but if you could just sit them in a room and explain, this isn't going to kill you, the other sports work. But I'll move on from that, and I will ask this. Why didn't they stay? They allegedly, everybody said they were making progress, not last night, but the night before, till 2.30 in the morning. Why didn't they just stay there? Why? Because they weren't making progress. And that's, that's that's the interesting part of this thing. The, the story of what happened uh, on that very weird 3 o'clock a.m. night, Tony, uh, I, I hope it gets told someday because it, it reminded me a lot, and I, I really am not trying to pat myself on the back here, but I'm going to. Um, it it reminded do. me a lot of when uh, all of the other reporters were reporting that Max Scherzer had gotten traded to the Padres. And you know that feeling as a reporter when all of your colleagues have something and you don't. It's the most nauseating feeling in the world. Like, it's, it just sucks because you feel like you're terrible at your job. And how do you not have someone who's telling you this? And, and so I didn't go with the Max Scherzer stuff, and I didn't go with it because it wasn't right, it turns out. And so, uh, you know, a, a number of other reporters were tweeting out details of what was going on in these negotiations and talking about how there was momentum toward a deal. And the people I was talking with just, weren't saying that they were saying the complete opposite that they don't know where these reporters are getting their information and it turns out uh there were some people uh on the league side who were a lot more optimistic about where things were going and i don't know if they were intentionally trying to change the narrative and get it out there publicly whether it was for strategic reasons or otherwise Mm -hmm. have a great day Mm -hmm. at school jack um i'm not sure what they were doing exactly but there was this sense out there that there was momentum. Turns out uh, the players were looking at what was being offered and saying, we don't want this. Like, this isn't good enough. And so to see all of this go down and then the next morning uh, I, I reached out to a couple of sources and they were like, the deal that we have on the table uh, stinks. And I think that really took Major League Baseball, Tony, by surprise. And, and what that tells me, is that they're not listening to each other. If you're Major League Baseball, and at this point you can't read the room to know that they don't like a deal, you're either not listening to them or you don't know who you're negotiating with. And I'd like to believe at this point they at least know that. And so to me, this comes down to communication. It's very easy to talk in a room. It's a lot harder to listen. 
And if these sides would just start listening to each other, particularly on the Major League Baseball side, because I don't think they've taken the union particularly seriously up to this point, and I think they're just starting to find out how resolute these guys are, I think if they start taking taking each other a little more seriously, that's where the deal gets made. So if I were to talk about strategy, and I were to look at the fact that only two series were canceled— I would say that Major League Baseball is trying to get a deal because they could have said we're canceling the whole month. They could have said rot in hell for the rest of your life. But they said two series, which are very easily easily made up. We have a pandemic still going around. There's war in the world. I honest to God wish that Biden could just say, no, for the good of the country, you have to play. You're going to play at last year's salary. You're going to make what you made last year and we'll worry about the future in the future. But he can't do that. But it does seem to me that at least baseball is saying we'd like to get a deal because we're only we're making minimal cancellations here. Cancellations that can be made up. Do you agree with that perception of it? I think that I I understand exactly why you would think that. But the problem is they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. You know, they're saying Rob Manfred's coming out publicly saying we want to get a deal done. Well, if you want to get a deal done, then offer something that will be accepted. Like that's the they know where the players are right now. And and I'm sorry, uh, Dan Halem has been doing this for a really long time and is one of the smartest people I have ever met. He's the negotiator for Major League Baseball. He knows exactly what the players will accept. He knows exactly what they'll accept. And not, not just because they've told him, but because he is a canny negotiator and people who have done this for a long time, you know what a deal zone is. You know where, where they're going to be going. Um, they need to get the owners on board. And, and the problem with that is this is a new generation of owners that has no institutional knowledge of the pain of a work stoppage. They weren't there in 94. Yeah. Jerry Reinsdorf was the only guy who was there in 1994. And they, they are about to learn a grievous lesson if they don't get their act together and up their offer to something that is not just like overwhelming but just reasonable players want to play tony they want to play but what they don't want to do is what happened in 2016 which has put themselves in a bad position because of a bad job of negotiating yeah i will say this that owners usually own other things and there's a way to get money in and players are going to be driving amazon prime trucks because they're not going to make any other oh, money, but no, we'll see what a, happens. No, that's a, I, I will say this, Tony. There's a very interesting. Uh, there's a very interesting thing that has come along in the sports world in the last probably five years or so, where there are uh, there are venture capital firms that raise money specifically to lend to athletes who are oh. early in their careers and haven't made it yet. And if, if listen, if the ball players want money, they can go and get money. Pretty high interest rate, but uh, they're okay. rich, so that really doesn't matter a whole lot. The, I, nobody's going to be starving here. Um, they're they're going to be doing all okay. right. It's it, to, to me, it's it's more a matter of um, what are we trying to do for the next generation of baseball players. I really do actually believe that. I really do believe that the Players Association has such a storied history, and they. Uh, they did I tell you last time I was on about David Ortiz and what he did? No. 
Okay. So they're down in the Dominican Republic, and there's a group of about, I think, 50, 60 players down there, and they bring David Ortiz into the room. And David Ortiz is a god, not just to, to baseball players down there, but he, if he ran for president, he would win in a Zelensky-style landslide. And he stood in front of this group of players, and he said to them, very simply, this is not about you. This is about your brothers. This is about the kids who are playing baseball right now. This is what the union does. We look out for the next generation of baseball players, and you have to stand together because if we see a single crack, then Major League Baseball will see it too, and they will take advantage of it, and they will own you because of it. And when David Ortiz said that, it riled up the base, Tony. And they've had that same message at meetings in Arizona, at meetings in Florida, and now on these calls during these negotiating sessions, I mean, the players are engaged, and I think Major League Baseball is finally, I hope Major League Baseball is finally starting to take them seriously, because if they are, that's where the deal's going to happen. Well, I hope it gets, I hope it happens. What, what is young Jack studying? You see, what grade is Jack in? What grade is he? Uh, Jack, Jack is it. Jack is in eighth grade and, uh, Jack is, uh, Jack is headed to the state, uh, math competition this weekend. Actually. I was just going to so, say, don't, don't put a pen in his hand. Don't let him be a writer. Let him study science. No. Science. Yeah, no. That's where the money is down the road. Not what we do. Science. No, that's exactly right. I, uh, though, though I will say this, he is, uh, he is the only child in his school who still does not have a phone. So, uh, he doesn't, doesn't know a whole lot about technology at this point. I haven't, uh, mm. I, I, I'm the, I'm the terrible dad who doesn't let his child have the phone. I'm surprised Wilbon lets his kid have a phone, uh, you know, cause I mean, Wilbon thinks that at 18, throw the kid out. Kid fends for himself. That's the way it is. Will Bond's parenting. All right, we'll talk to you later at PTI. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Look, thank you, Tone. See you then. Jeff passing, boys and girls. We'll take a break. We have email and jingle when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. Banjo music. Wish I could play the banjo. Love banjo music. Joe and Molly Chambers, thank you very, very much. <coughs> Nigel, Bethesda Bagels. Yes, Bethesda Bagels. We love them. You will as well. All you need to do is go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you. Then pop on in and you'll be thrilled. Look forward when the show is over at 4 o'clock this afternoon to finally having a bagel. Hey, you got to go upstairs for PTI. Yeah, that'll just about do it for us today. Before we get to the mailbag, let me just say when I think back on all the crap I learned in high school, it's a wonder I can think at all. And though my lack of education hasn't hurt me none, I can read the writing on the wall. Code of Chrome. Uh, this is Paul Simon's, I think it's There Goes Ryman Simon. I think it's his first uh, album without Art Garfunkel. I think so. Forest Hills High School's own Paul Simon. Thanks to our guest, Chris Saliza. Jeff Passan, thanks to today's sponsor, Freshly. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Odyssey. If you get the show through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Got a lot of email. We're getting... A tremendous amount of people from small towns 
We got to stop it now. It's good. I'm grateful. <laughs> Turn the spigot off. I'm Before grateful. We get to small but... towns. So new month means new code. Uh, today was delivery day for Johnny O. Nigel doesn't have to. Nigel's show up. got some Johnny yeah. O. I've got him wearing Johnny O. Right Very now. Very exciting. Uh, yes. yes. So with it being March and with the start of today's show, the new code is TK Upset. TK let's, Upset for let's see for, if that let's yeah, see if for that the eight over nine. <laughs> yeah, eight over nine, Bob Ryan. It's upset from Melanie Schroeder in Pittsburgh. I'm articulate, funny, well-meaning, and charming, and I sport perfect grammar and punctuation to boot. I'm a devoted PTI fan. Uh, 19 or 20 years, like most girls from Pittsburgh, I know a zillion times more about sports than your average boo-boo yogi. That's Pittsburgh girls do. Tori does. Yeah. Pittsburgh girls yeah. do. However, I never even knew that you had a radio show until a week or so after you started the podcast. Actually, now that I think about it, you're more of a snagglepuss, but that's a large part of the reason why us littles are oddly devoted to you. I honestly think of you and Gary and Liz and... David and Tim Kirchin, Pat Forty, Greg Garcia, and Leon, and at times even Saliza as my actual real-life friends. And without a doubt, Jean McManus as the benevolent godmother of us all. <laughs> These podcasts have helped me feel connected to something significant during the past two awful years, which have been the only bleak ones of my life. And going through divorce, aging parents with health issues, loss of a job, my son's growing up way too fast, the vagaries of home ownership when you're a single woman, if not with a plum, then at least with dignity despite the pain. This is the fourth time I've emailed the show. I've yet to hear my words on the air. Okay, you got it. <laughs> you got it. 17 kitchen outlets, 31-pound shelter dog, shelter mystery dog. She was pitched to me at eight weeks as a chihuahua mix. If she's a chihuahua mix, it's 5%. And Bryson DeChambeau shops in the petite section. It's funny. It's a good email. Thank you. Uh, Steve Gilmore, let me get this straight. A big fat bear knows when trash day is, but my 16-year-old masculine child, honor society <laughs> member, can't remember it for more than two weeks in a row. What are we even doing out here, man? Hank the Tank. From Ron Council in Towson, Maryland. If everyone knows your name at Applebee's, you really screwed up somewhere along the way. <laughs> That's It's such a pithy little statement, and it makes me happy. Yes. That makes me happy. From Nick Green. I'm a high school principal in Washington Heights. Washington Heights, New York City, I assume. Oh, yeah. And on a recent dress out of uniform day, one of our second grade students wore a Binghamton Bearcats hooded sweatshirt. Upon noticing, I started to ask the following. So you know Tony Kornheiser? Pretty famous alum. I mean, from a while back, so maybe you don't know him. How about Sam the Sham Sesame? Bearcat <laughs> basketball? No. Seven-year-old just stared at me. I guess he's not a listener to the podcast. So much for the connective tissue. On an unrelated note, if you check the timestamp on this email, it was sent at 2222 on 22222. Thank you, Nick Green. Reed Gray in Euless, E-U-L-E-S-S, -E -E Euless, Texas. Work sucks, car broke down, trade coffee, good. I got PT's Coffee Flatlander blend. Life is good. <laughs> well, They know what they're doing, trade. Yeah. I hope they sponsor some more. From Dan Walsman in Damascus, Maryland. All of us littles need a moon update. Is the moon currently waxing? No, it's waning. It's been waning for a couple of weeks. Waning gibbous. Is currently a gibbous moon? When's the next crescent moon? Soon. Are there any gambling lines on when the next full moon will be? Yes, Chuck. Yeah, it, you know, everybody knows when the next full moon will be. In all your calendars, it lists two years ahead. Full moon on this particular day. From Mike Roseberry, State College, Pennsylvania. The only way I'll believe Saliza had a seventh grade girlfriend is if he was a senior at the time. <laughs> Pretty funny and nasty, isn't it? <laughs> Teresa LaHaye in Springfield, Missouri. Wait, we're doing phone numbers now? <laughs> Lucy Ricardo's number was Murray Hill 59099. Once it was Murray Hill 59075, but you know Lucy probably just forgot. <laughs> Still the official school bus driver of the Tony Kornheiser show. Phone numbers now. That's so great. Eric Fulton in Rockville, Maryland. If, if I buy a used Subaru, does it mean I love someone else's kids more than you do? <laughs> Interesting question. Uh, DG 
Hate to stick it to the legal pad. Shabbat Shalom. Regards, DG. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> DG in the middle. All right. Uh, Rico in the forest. DG called. He told me to tell you James Dean was a giant over the weekend on uh, Turner Classic with Liz Taylor and Rock Hudson. Now, James Dean made about four movies. Yeah. Just giant about. was one of them. Yeah. And I think it you was know, on Turner this past weekend. Yes. You know, DG calling him. <laughs> Victor Hogg or Haig, H-A-A-G. Victor. Uh, good morning, Mr. Tony. First time, long time. Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. While you were on the nose that Saskatoon is a city of some size, 300,000 in the Saskatoon metro area. It's not a capital. The provincial capital of Saskatchewan is Regina, only marginally behind Saskatoon in population, both of them bigger than Binghamton. Yeah, Binghamton probably's got about 50,000 people. Uh, Karsten writes, Dr. Ron, I'll be out of town on Monday. Won't be able to call you for my birthday. Hope you have a great day. <laughs> sort of good. Mike Roseberry again. Boy, he's, he's prolific. Jared Burley wrote in on the apocryphal story of how the town of Horseheads got its name, essentially a horse massacre perpetrated by the Iroquois Nation. He dismissed this story by saying, come on, man, could you really sneak into a camp and quietly pull that off? Jack Waltz and Khartoum <laughs> disagree with his position. I think I said Khartoum that day. You did. Brian Patterson point. in Indianapolis. Thought you'd want some feedback from Alora Little. Just got my first coffee order from a new Mr. Tony sponsor, Trade Coffee. Absolutely delicious. The quiz works. And of course, yes, I use the code. I'm no dope. Well done. This is all we care for, people. Mark Copeland in Hershey, Pennsylvania. I've been to Hershey. You've been to Hershey, Pennsylvania? I've driven through. I've never stopped. Michael, you've been to Hershey, Pennsylvania. We left a classmate at Hershey, Pennsylvania once. Eighth grade. (laughs) What do you mean? (laughs) We left two kids. What? Yeah. All right. Sorry, They didn't get on the bus? They didn't tell you that? No. Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Wow. Hush that up, right? Uh, the only way to get rid of a 500-pound bear, Mike Cop- Mark Copeland writes, is to get a bigger bear. I mean, honestly, what are we doing out here? Still equipped with a healthy fear of humanity. Uh, Richard Baker. Hank the Tank has been falsely accused, kind of. DNA analysis has determined that Hank is, the only response, is only responsible for half the break-ins in South Lake Tahoe. DNA revealed that three other bears are involved. I'm a native Virginian, retired to the Tahoe area. In the summer, I work at a golf course for spending money and golf privileges. When I was new to the job, I was cutting fairways. I came to number 18 about 10 in the morning. I saw a bear in the fairway being chased around by two guys in golf carts. I radioed my boss, telling me he would forget, tell me to forget cutting 18 and head back to the shop. Instead, he said, I know, just cut around the bear. (laughs) What? So I drove to the fairway. I noticed the head pro and a security officer were in the carts keeping the bear from heading to the clubhouse. The security officer was literally slapping the bear on its butt with his bare hand. Turns out the bear was buzzed on rotting alderberries. The wildlife officer came, gave the bear a tranquilizer, and after a while it lumbered back into the woods. No one in history has ever been killed by a black bear in California, Nevada. Never, ever. When I was finishing my career in Virginia, the person to whom I'm related by marriage moved out to Tahoe to find employment and get us set up. We were bi-coastal for two years. Every weekday during that time, we would both record PTI, and that night we would watch it together while on the phone. I cannot tell you how much it meant to us to share your show those many evenings. Now we have the podcast on PTI. Many thanks. Lovely. Isn't that great? Lovely email. From David Bozovich Jr. in Gilbert, Arizona. Wait a minute. Are we citing obscure telephone references from ancient sitcoms as the new game? The Mayberry telephone operator's name was Sarah. My dad is planning a summer road trip to Mount Airy, North Carolina, the birthplace of Andy Griffith. Sadly, I am not joking. (laughs) John Cassidy. Mr. Tony, very few towns can match the famous people in my hometown of Marion, Iowa, population 39,000. If you Google the famous people from Marion, Iowa, the Cherry Sisters show up. 
They were a vaudeville act from the 19th century that was so bad, people threw vegetables at them when they performed. <laughs> they actually made it to Broadway in New York in 1898 to help the Olympic Music Hall, which was failing. They often appeared behind a wire mesh fence. I love listening to your podcast. What great is that? Kyle Dowd in Boulder, Colorado. I'm trying to understand the show's new famous hometown people per capita requirement. With just under 40,000 people, does my hometown of Montclair, New Jersey, meet the appropriate ratio? A little big, I would say. A right? little big, 40,000. Or does it only count if your hometown has more cows than human? If we qualify, may I offer astronaut Buzz Aldrin, whose childhood home is less than a mile from where I was raised, or David Tyree of Hellman-assisted oh, yeah. football-catching catch. fame, thanks to Eli. And while he was not born there, Joe Walsh attended Montclair High School, so I sort of feel that counts, too. From Troy in Denver, Colorado. Hope it's not Denver. Thought I'd throw my hat into this famous people from my hometown game. I spent the first 12 years of my life in Harbor Springs, Michigan, a town with a population about 800, so I hope that's small enough for you, Sparky. Absolutely. <laughs> but I was actually born early at a friend of my mom's house in Walloon Lake, about 12 miles away from home in the nearest hospital. Walloon Lake is the summer home of the Hemingway family. Yeah, Ernest Hemingway family. The Hemingway family used to take the train up from Chicago to my hometown of Harbor Springs and take a horse-drawn carriage ride back to their house on the lake. Hemingway actually worked for the Petoskey newspaper, our sister town about five miles south of the harbor. After the war, and wrote a series of short stories called the Nick Adams stories that centered around that area. In addition, he wrote a short story called the Gaslight District about a boxer who was supposed to take a fall in a match but didn't, and the Chicago mob wasn't happy about it. Although the story was based in Chicago, the description of the bar was of his favorite bar in my hometown. That's pretty That's cool. Lovely. Jim Hickey, Springfield, Virginia. Long time little from the style section days. I'm from Saginaw. It took me four days to hitchhike <laughs> from Saginaw. We've come to look for America. Along with Draymond Green, question mark of the Mysterians, and Serena Williams. Not a bad lineup, but batting cleanup, we've got Stevie Wonder. Pretty good for a dying Rust Belt factory town. Serena Williams was born in Michigan? I guess so. I didn't know that. I thought she was born in California. I thought it was California. Yeah. Question mark of the Mysterians. Draymond Green, Stevie Wonder. <clears throat> this is from Matt B. Not that Matt B. I'm from Mamaroneck, New York, home of Wingfoot Golf Club. Matt Dillon, and most importantly, the home of Michael O'Keefe. I do recognize the name. If you don't recognize the game name, he's the guy who played Danny Noonan in Caddyshack. I was a looper at the foot for 10 years. And like Danny Noonan, I received a caddy scholarship. I used it to attend the Pride of Central New York. SUNY Cortland, know it well. Our football team played Ithaca at Giant Stadium last year. And next season, the game will be at Yankee Stadium. I like them apples, Stony Brook. P.S. I don't know Matt Dillon, but I got to caddy for his father, Paul, a few times. Nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. I ain't paying no 50 cents for no Coke. Well, then you ain't getting no Coke. <clears throat> I'll read one more. All right, I'll read one more. It's a long one. This is from Andrea Rockman. Thought I'd throw in my two cents worth of hometown famous people. Since my birth town has less than 50K population, I thought it would qualify. I don't know. It's on the edge. <clears throat> it's right on the edge. Niagara Falls is known for Raging Water and Love Canal. Baseball great Sal Magley and musician Tommy Tedesco from the infamous Wrecking Crew music group that played backup from everyone from Elvis to Barbara Streisand and the Ronettes recordings from the 50s through the 70s. Jesse, stop it. People hate when you do this. There was a documentary on The Wrecking Crew released in 2015 that if you haven't seen it, you would really enjoy. I did see it. Get Michael or one of your other helpers to find it on the Hulu on demand or the YouTube. But the really interesting people from Niagara Falls are Stefano and son Peter Magadino, 
who Wikipedia simply describes as mobster and mafia boss. Nicknamed The Undertaker because they owned a funeral home in town where the coffins were rumored to be too layered to store the guy they whacked the night before. Now for my family tie-in. My father ran a local tavern in town, the kind of place where everyone actually did know your name, during the 60s to early 70s. Late one snowy winter night after closing the bar, with a bag full of money, no less, my dad's car slid into Magadino's Cadillac that was parked down the street. Uh-oh. Not a lot of damage other than a few scratches, but always wanting to be honest, my dad left a note on the windshield explaining what had happened and leaving his name and number. The following day, three gentlemen walked into dad's taverns in suits and fedoras asking for him. Magadino himself thanked him for being an honest son and stated he would be taken care of. From that time forward, each night after closing, my dad watched as he carried his night's cash safely to his car. The nights my mom closed up, she was followed by a gentleman all the way to her home to be certain she was safe. My parents never spoke to the gentleman who watched over their safety or were even close enough to recognize a face. No words were ever spoken. Church bells all were broken. <laughs> but they knew who it was that organized that. Yeah, they may have done some terrible things, but they made sure my parents arrived safely home to my sister and I. Only protection I have now is my Subaru Outback. Brilliant email. If you're out on your bike tonight, everyone, as always, do wear white. What a waste of time. God.